This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Some adults struggle to communicate with students who have autism and try to fix them. But what if we found a way to help these students use their natural gifts to convey their thoughts and feelings? Chris Martin, an award-winning poet and celebrated educator, works with non-speaking autistic children and adults, teaching them to write poetry. In his latest book, May Tomorrow Be Awake, Chris introduces the techniques he uses in the classroom and celebrates an inspiring group of young, neurodiverse thinkers and their electric verse. In this episode, queer, transgender, autistic author and educator Nick Walker has a conversation with Chris about the mind, language, human potential, and the lessons we can all learn from one another. This episode was recorded during a live online event on August 18th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hello, hello. Hello, how are Welcome. you? Oh, very good. Well, it has been a long time since you and I got to have a conversation. And uh, the last time we had a conversation, neither of us had published a book. And now we both have. So that's very <laughs> exciting. Well, congratulations, first of all. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this book. So you... Um, you work teaching poetry. You teach poetry writing, um, and that's mostly what this book is about. Uh, your experience is teaching poetry writing specifically, uh, largely to non-speaking autistic uh, writers. And so, I would just uh, love to start out, you know, hearing about that. How did you, how did you get started on on that? Yeah, I mean, it was a long, long process. Um, and it began uh, somewhat haphazardly, I would say. Um, I, When I was uh, a baby poet living in New York, um, I wanted to teach in the schools and I got uh, a job at an after-school program in South Brooklyn. And um, this is in 2003. And uh, I um, ended up being kind of a utility player there where I was, I was teaching comic book design and mm. uh, a class on like rap composition and I coached girls basketball. Um, and uh, the, when the other teaching artists were having difficulty integrating students into their classes, sometimes the director would just have me hang out with them. And, and my first instinct was to do poetry. Um, and I only learned kind of later that they were autistic. Um, 
and I didn't really know much about autism at the time. And so, you know, in, I feel like in, in retrospect, that was actually a really good thing uh, because mm-hmm. the prevailing, you know, ideas at the time would have forged, uh, you know, created a real wedge between me and these students because of what I wanted to do with them and what I imagined they were capable of. Um, And there was one student in particular who was just uh, incredibly passionate about the Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes movie. And, uh, and so we, you know, I, I tried to engage him with some like traditional forms and it just like wasn't working. And so finally it was like, okay, well, why don't we like write a poemization of the film? Like you tell me the film and I'll act as your like amanuensis and I'll ask questions and like, we can figure it all out. And he just went for it. And, um, and over the period of weeks, he completed his epic Planet of the Apes poemization. And I loved it so much. Um, I was so excited about it just on the level of art. And, uh, and so we decided to bring it to his teachers is kind of day teachers, uh, the director thought it might be enlightening. And so I came early one day and met with them and we passed it out and I was just kind of glowing, you know, and, uh, and they had this very strange response where they, they were like a little bit, um, befuddled a little bit, a little bit awestruck. Uh, one teacher was even crying and I was so confused about what was going on. Uh, and it took me many years to kind of piece together after working with many other students and understanding what their experiences in school had been like that, that these teachers were, you know, really taking in in that moment, how little they had been able to reach the imaginative breadth of where this student was at and perhaps the their even their concept of his humanity had been lacking until that moment but so that got me hooked um and that's one of the reasons why our organization is called unrestricted interest because it was clear that these so-called restrictive interests with abnormal uh intensity uh mm-hmm. were exactly the perfect place to start and that um as poets, we could just take some time to revel in whatever that passion or area of devoted study might be. And then we could kind of move from there and discover new territory. Um, but it was only within the last six years that I started working with non-speaking autistic writers. Uh, and that was kind of like a quantum leap in some ways around this what I was finding to be this really amazing reciprocity between poetry and autism and autistic individuals. And um, one of the things I'd begun to notice that like to kind of, when I had to explain it to people, because when I started the organization, of course, people were so like, this makes no sense to me. Like, first of all, autistic people are only supposed to be good at like STEM subjects, right? And then two, like poetry is the most complicated and alienating thing in the world how does that make sense and so you know it it was very it was an education for me and just like how much both of these like 
in some ways, art forms. Uh, being autistic and writing poetry were just so poorly understood. And, uh, and so I had to like bridge that gap for people. And I would say that, um, that in my experience, autistic, uh, autistic life is deeply patterned and it's sensory rich. And for me, that's the best kind of poems are like thoughtfully, creatively patterned, uh, carefully patterned and then sensory, you know, immense sensory detail. Um, And so when I first started working with not speaking autistic writers, I noticed that that was ratcheted up even a little bit more. And beyond that, their particular approach to language uh, was really as unmasked as it gets. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, just how much we mask our language um, or maybe don't aren't even given the opportunity to discover what our language is, how we would use language if given the opportunity and weren't just conditioned into these particular modes. And a lot of these writers I work with, um, you know, they, a lot of them had to wait a long time for the communication supports to express themselves, but they, developed patterns and particularities with language that are just so startling. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So in terms of communication supports, and this is, uh, this is something that I think a lot of people are, are unaware of that has shifted in a big way in the world over uh, the past, uh, you know, maybe a couple decades, um, yeah. because it used to be that uh, when uh, when an autistic person couldn't speak, uh, they were called nonverbal, right. and you know, meaning they can't they can't use words. And uh, in in retrospect, you know, that seems very ironic because, of course, when you give the proper communication supports and the ability to type and such, you know, they can't speak, but uh, are often extremely gifted with with words. Um, They're highly verbal. It's just not uh, spoken. And uh, what we're finding now in terms of the, you know, as as the research increases on autism and the the neurology of it and such, what we're seeing is um, often uh, the lack of uh, the lack of oral speech is just a motor control issue, and for for so many you know decades, really, there was this assumption that they were uh, you know defective mentally, mm. that if an autistic person couldn't speak, they must uh, be lacking in intelligence and incapable of understanding language, really not relating to their verbal uh, sphere or the sphere of uh, communication and agency at all. And it was very dehumanizing, this presumption of incompetence. And I, you know, one of the slogans of uh, the autistic uh, rights movement, especially among non-speaking autistic uh, activists has been presumed competence. Uh, and we're really seeing that, okay, they're, you know, they're not nonverbal, they're just non-speaking, 
And I still see, you know, I still, I still encounter people using the, this archaic term nonverbal and, you know, I generally correct it when Absolutely. I see it. Yeah. yeah. But um, that, I guess, brings me to the question. I mean, part of what's happened is the sort of work that you're doing, um, you know, bringing the words of non-speaking autistic people uh, out into the world, and, you know, uh, uh, supporting that, offering venues for publication, just, um, uh, but in, uh, some of that involves advances in technology and that can mean electronic technology or just even technologies in terms of new clever ways we come up with doing things. So I'd love to hear a little more about that in terms of what sort of communication supports do your students use? Like, what is it? Um, what are the methods and equipment and such that allow a non-speaking autistic person to get their words out into onto onto paper into print? Yeah, um, yeah. I want to thank you for. <clears throat> making that distinction with nonverbal and non-speaking. And that's one of the things I love about uh, your book, Neuroqueer Heresies, is that it's such uh, incredibly practically useful resource guide to language and to the importance of distinctions when it comes to language. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, um, yeah. And there's two things there before I, I talk about, um, the communication supports that I think are really interesting. One, and of course there's a degree of self-selection when it comes to this, but the writers who I work with um, who have come to me because they're interested in poetry, right? Uh, they, I would say 95% of them are hyperlexical. Mm -hmm. So that they not only have a larger vocabulary than I do, but they also know multiple languages. Um, so there's that incredible paradox, right, compared to how we've been taught through that nonverbal lens. Um, but then there's also this thing on top of it, which is really extraordinary, which is a deep lyricality. Um, and I feel like that is something that, you know, that poetry helps kind of bring that alive for other people uh, because, and this will, I feel like this is a very good crossover with communication supports because I have um, a lot of writers that I work with who their writing is extremely slow, right? They are uh, in some cases using a letter board and either using their finger or um, using a pencil backwards to indicate letter by letter with a laminated letter board held up in front of them or a stenciled letter board that they actually go through the letters to make it more clear. Um, you know, you're talking about one letter uh, every couple, like every like five seconds or something like that. And then there's, there's sometimes, you know, uh, they, they will hit between or, you know, the whole process can take even for a short poem, like a haiku length poem can take, um, you know, 10 or 20 minutes just to not to think it, just to write it. Um, and cause they usually have thought the whole thing beforehand often. Um, but 
what I love to see is a, a line can take a very long time. And then the second line comes and there's this like an internal rhyme somewhere or there's something else. There, there's all this like lyrical information that is being sustained through all of that sensory motor, uh, you know, challenge and effort. And to me, that's what's even more exciting or, or improbable than the hyperlexical nature is that like to be able to keep the sound of what you want through all of that. And like, it's just, it's remarkable. Mm. Um, yeah, I think one of the, you know, right now is, it's just, there's so much more available to non-speaking autistic individuals than there was 10 years ago. And that's because the methods have kind of proliferated. There are several different methods. Some of them are spelling, um, spell to communicate is, is one of them. Uh, and we partner with an organization called IASC, the International Association for Spelling as Communication. Um, and we do a, a monthly open mic um, on online with non-speaking or unreliably speaking individuals. We usually get like, you know, we get like a hundred people in the, in the event and then we get like 20 writers and songwriters sharing stuff and it's amazing um but so spelling in the in the way that i kind of just outlined uh there's and that's related to it's you know a variation in some ways of the rapid prompting method that was kind of famously um devised by soma mukapajai with i mean in relationship with her son tito who's an amazing non-speaking writer mm -hmm. and then there's I think a really interesting kind of spectrum of assisted typing. Um, and what I love about not only having multiple methods, but also uh, having gotten to the point where people can kind of wayfare uh, and try to figure out like what actually works for me, what works for me in a sensory motor way. And then within that method, how do I make it mine? So that I, I think, you know, it used to be that methods were kind of airtight because of how much prejudice they were facing. And I think now people find a little bit more flexibility so that they can make it their own and can actually find like, this is the way for me within this method that works best. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's remarkable. Um, it's remarkable, especially when you get in a room of non-speakers who are all utilizing different methods at different speeds with different little variations. The, I mean, it's its its, its own really amazing kind of diversity within neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. Yes, lovely. Um, and speaking of, um, you know, speaking of neurodiversity, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you are, you came into this, as you said, you know, not really knowing anything about autism. And so, you know, it's a discovery process. It's very different from, um, you know, someone who comes in as a, uh, uh, you know, someone who has been trained in sort of the mainstream 
academic and professional discourse on autism and might come in with a lot of uh, terrible preconceptions about autistic limitations. Exactly. And, and you get to come in, um, you know, just learning from the reality of the, the people you're working with, which is beautiful and you don't come in with any preconceived limitations since you know no sense that oh these people are going to be limited in this particular way and I think that clearly opened up this beautiful realm of possibility <laughs> um now to the best of my knowledge you're not autistic yourself but you are um neurodivergent in some way yes you're not entirely neurotypical either so I'm very curious about that and about uh, what sort of self-knowledge you've gained doing this work? Yeah. Um, I was first diagnosed with ADHD when I was 17. Um, mm -hmm. And it was clear throughout my childhood that, um, that I was different. And I was what, you know, people sometimes call twice exceptional. Although I really love to <laughs> now... Uh, challenge that with these non-speaking autistic writers I work with who are deeply twice exceptional <laughs> if you want to go by that rubric but um yeah I was the kind of kid who uh who did well in school when I was focused uh but I also would burst out singing in the middle of class without realizing <laughs> I was doing it and I would you know I get the report cards were always like we love Chris but it is very hard to have him in class. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and it was interesting because all the hyperactivity kind of dropped out when I went through puberty. And so I was, it was much easier for me to mask. Um, and I'd already, and I had gone through some social upheaval where I, you know, people had decided I needed to be taught how to, how social, how the, you know, the pain of social relations, what that mm -hmm. entails. And so I had, um, I'd grown pretty adept at, at seeming neurotypical. Um, and also, you know, with that diagnosis, ADHD at the time where I got it, um, you know, you just told you have a deficit and a disorder and there's no community that you know of to receive you. You know, there's no, there's no way to think about it at that time where it felt like, oh, I could really run with this. Um, when I love your suggestion of the um, kinetic cognitive style uh, or cognitive kinetic style, I can't remember. Kinetic cognitive, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think, because that, that's such a good, <laughs> I, I identify with that so strongly. Um, yeah, someone just asked me during a talk one time during the Q&A, they were yeah. like, is there is there a non-pathologizing way to talk about ADHD with, without all these, you know, cause it, you know, it's got like deficit and disorder in it. So pathologizing is there a non-pathologizing term. And I just kind of pulled, pulled that off the top of my head, you know, kinetic cognitive style and it's, yeah. it's touching on. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I love how that also dovetails with what we're learning about autism and how much of a sensory motor, um, mm -hmm. uh, how that complexity is so expressive of what an autistic life looks like and feels like and moves like. Um, so the kinetic part of it, I think is so important. Uh, and then as I got older, 
uh, and got out of college and started to teach. And um, I was glad that I had the diagnosis because it, I was finding myself so drawn towards these particular students. And it helped to know that, you know, we had this degree of fellowship to begin with. Mm. Right. And so what's been just beyond uh, joyful and, and healing is to constantly deepen those relationships uh, with others who are neurodivergent in different ways and then allow that to deepen my own relationship with neurodivergence. And I have, um, you know, Mark, uh, Mark E.T., who's one of the, the main writers I feature in this book, has been in many ways my greatest mentor along these lines and has been pushing me over the years to think a little harder about the ways in which my neurodivergence might surface. And so I would say that uh, I'm definitely not not autistic. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I've gone uh, through some processes that, that back that up. And I'm, I'm still trying to kind of figure out what that means to me and how it works uh, for me. Now, one of the things that, um, and that's actually my next book is thinking through all this stuff. It's called Becoming Otherwise. Um, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's very exciting. I mean, I just, I love it. And I love, and, you know, beyond all else, I just love the community I've found and the kinds of ways in which we can interact. I mean, when I get together with my non-speaking autistic friends, you know, everything else, just all that weight falls away. You know, all the masking, all the armor. It's just like mm-hmm. we can be with each other uh exactly with all of who we are um and that feels so good and i think that um one of the other writers that's featured aman bukela she wrote this poem where she talked about tilted thinking and i was immediately like oh that, that, that has frisson for me i like that and mm-hmm. we so i asked her to kind of talk about it more with me and and we both got really excited about this idea of tilted thinkers and as that is kind of a way of like just stepping outside of the language, the medical language and the diagnostic language. And how, if we're going to invent this for ourselves, what does it sound like? What does it look like? And so that idea of being a tilted thinker is very strong for me. And, um, and it's very exciting to build community around that, even just our, our little kind of set. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, I this this uh, you talked about autistic lyricality, and that really mm-hmm. resonates with me. And I see that with uh, you know just autistic writers in in general, um, and and you know there's this whole uh, there's a there really is like. Uh, a lot so there's so there's so much non-speaking autistic <clears throat> uh, uh poetry and then even the uh you know the prose writing like uh, uh Tito Mukapadye's prose yeah. is extremely lyrical uh so so sensory rich and such a, a beautiful unique uh 
uh, distinctive way of relating to language. Really, the language has a feel to yeah. it. Um, but then also speaking autistics as well, you yeah. know, I see um, because there's this whole, you know, there's a whole emerging genre of autistic speculative fiction too, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dora Raymaker's uh, uh, books, you know, Hoshi and the Red Sea Circuit and Resonance, Ada Hoffman's uh, trilogy, The Out- the Outside and the follow-up, the books that follow The Outside. And there's this whole... Yeah a real sort of emerging renaissance of autistic uh, speculative fiction, particularly queer autistic speculative fiction. I mean, my own writing, my own fiction writing and comic writing is part of that as well. And I see that same lyricism there and it looks, you know, it looks a little different, but there is this this way of relating to the beauty of language and the patterns in language and the what's the the musicality of it and this uh, this search for how do we uh, uh, precisely express sensory experiences that were not shared by the people who developed the language in the first place. Yeah, and and how do you how do you twist and tilt and play with language to do that. And it's, it's just lovely to, uh, uh, to see it happen. Um, and the, um, I, I, I think, uh, <clears throat> I'm really fascinated by the, the range there. And of course, it's a bit of a cliche to talk about autism as a, a a spectrum. I kind of hate that term, and right. in a way, because people uh, use it in a very pathologizing way. But uh, you know, I hear people use "on the spectrum" as a, a euphemism because they can't—they think it's shameful to say autistic. But but there is this vast spectrum of experience, and yet these commonalities. And I think yeah. that's that's fascinating to me. I'm curious about. Um, what common themes you see emerge in uh, the writing of of the autistic poets and writers you work with? Like, what are the um, what are the themes and patterns? Are there what are the things where, like, um, if you encountered the work of a non speaking autistic poet you never encountered before, for instance, like, what are the what are the things where you feel like I bet this is an autistic poem? Yeah. What? Yeah. What are what are those? What are the distinctive qualities from from in your experience? I've never thought about that. I, yeah, I'd be really curious to to do that challenge. Um, I remember in in grad school getting an MFA where there was we'd always do one workshop where no one put their names on things, and you always just knew mm-hmm. what was who's for the most part. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. And I and you're right. Um, the range is astounding. It's one of the reasons I got really excited about this book and about what it might do in the world, because I felt like I was just, you know, every single session I was working with a writer they would bring out something just so vibrant and so different than the other person and non-speaking autistic 
writers are so used to being the exception of having to represent all non-speaking autistic writers and 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 people who you know still wield this outrageous organized prejudice against non-speaking autistic writers will attack them one at a time right mm -hmm. and so one of the things that seemed so exciting to me was well what if you know if i can bring them all together into this book and do these close readings of their work and people can see like oh my goodness like each one of these writers is doing something that I've never seen before. And it's utterly different from this other writer, you know, that they are, I, I would say they're um, in some ways, the only like thing that goes across the board would be uh, just breaking the rules, you know, mm -hmm. but and in many cases, disregarding the rules it's just kind of like and that's that's where it's like most fluid i think is when the writers are just like listen i'm not really interested in uh, like devoting any energy to what rules language have just it's how i feel it should be used and the patterns i feel like it should like what carries the internal rhythms of my own thought um and, but there is some interesting, uh, like subject matter. I, I will always find these little crossovers where at one point I got really excited because I noticed that almost every writer I'd worked with had a poem about volcanoes um, or like lava. I want to get back to something you talked about earlier about masking, yeah. because that, I don't know, in case the audience is unfamiliar, I'll say, you know, masking is, um, passing essentially it's learning to perform neurotypicality so it's perform you know performing and neurotypicality so for an autistic person or other neurodivergent person to act like they're not autistic to try to to imitate the embodiment and social style of a non-autistic person essentially to hide who they are to be to be in the closet in order to avoid uh, the sort of abuse and exclusion and such that autistic people encounter in the world, you know, very much like being, being in the closet, passing, you know, so many oppressed minority groups over the years have found some equivalent of like, some of us can hide and find it safer to hide and yeah. pass for a member of the dominant majority. Um, and there's this very interesting division in the autistic community because autistic people who can speak are pushed relentlessly to mask. They're pushed relentlessly, you know, it's subjected to these, you know, like uh, uh, behavioral therapies that are extremely abusive and trauma-inducing to, you know, it force autistic people to mask and it's like to, to to get around in the world, to hold a job, whatever it's like, one is expected to mask and hide being autistic and act like a non-autistic person. And you know, I write about that in my own work a lot about uh, unmasking and embracing autistic embodiment and autistic modes of sociality and being, and uh, to to drop all of the, the tension and physical armoring that one has to put on to mask and the um then the non-speaking autistic people um 
are not pushed to mask in the same way because people give up on them. People decide, oh, they're never going to hold a job. They're never going to have friends. They're just in, you know, in their own little world. They're disconnected from everyone. They they have a, a very limited intellect or no self-awareness. And so nobody bothers trying to make the mask because they assume that they'll never be able to participate meaningfully in the non-autistic world at all. Um, and that is, you know, which is terrible, you know, and, and of course, you know, in the, you know, in the, the ableist world, you know, the non-speaking autistics could call low functioning as if making noises with your mouth is the highest function of a human being. And then <laughs> the autistics who can speak are called high functioning and helps at very different still. standards. Yeah. Right. So, um, I I discovered um, when I started this process for myself of unmasking and of, of uh, letting myself move like an autistic person and recovering my autistic embodiment, my autistic uh, style, and just letting myself be flamingly autistic. What I found is that it opened up uh, cognitive capacities and creative capacities that I'd cut myself off from by masking that uh, yeah. it was like, I couldn't be my full creative self without being my full autistic self. Um, and so I, yeah, I'm wondering for the non-speaking autistics who haven't received the same pressure to mask, does that, um, you think that's uh, uh, helped to leave their creativity unhindered as well? Well, it's a fascinating question. And I would say, one, yes. I mean, I think that I, I, I feel like it's incalculable how much time those of us who can or might pass, and actually everyone spends on learning the ways they should be in the world and the ways oh, yeah. they should talk and the ways they should write and the ways they should stand. And there's just so much energy poured into that that mm -hmm. could be poured into all these other <laughs> things that it's just mind-blowing to think about. And so I think you're right in a very real sense that not speaking autistics who have not gotten caught in the gravity of that because they've been thought uncatchable to some degree are uh, have, have put that energy into different things, into different stores of creative output. Um, and what is also really fascinating to me and in in writing this new book i've been thinking about it a lot is how it doesn't mean non-speaking autistic people avoid the capture of all of the normative pressures right mm -hmm. I, I have a writer that i'm very close with who uh could never be captured by neurotypicality, but the very first poem that they ever wrote with me had a very like heteronormative mm -hmm. vibe to it. And I was like, okay, you know, that's, I mean, that's age appropriate, I guess that's what's going on. I get it. And, but it, but it, I, even then it's something like felt a little false to me, felt a little performative. And uh, as we got to know each other at some point, I, brought up asexuality and I can't remember what was the context for it, but the writer was like, wait, I, I could be that. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure you could be that. And 
they were like, oh yeah, well, that's, that's what I am. Um, and I was like, well, that's really interesting because that first poem you wrote, um, you know, felt really performative in this other direction. They were like, oh yeah, I was just trying to fit in and like, <laughs> you know, trying to meet expectations. And so you have this right. person who in one way avoids the capture, in other ways is completely captured until they see that there are alternatives, right? So it's really fascinating to me that none of us is immune. We're all, and we're all intersectionally being like the, the capture is a, is attempted on intersectional levels all the time. And so you may be very free in one sense and then totally closeted in another sense. And, but I do think that as, as you do like lean into the liberatory uh, feeling of, of, you know, of letting go of that armor of letting go of those masks, you do find it's like, well, maybe it's not just that, I'm neurodivergent, you know, maybe I can't really in any good faith, like subscribe to being like straight. Like, what does that even mean to me anymore? Other than I'm going to agree to buy into this system that I know is incredibly like violent and coercive. Um, and so I, I do love seeing how all of those things start to kind of blossom and open up together those questionings. Um, and I think that there's something about autistic experience, thinking embodiment that really lends itself to that, um, that intersectionally liberated thinking. And yes. it's something that makes me really excited about the ways in which autistic writers and thinkers can be leaders as we move into what is hopefully like a new paradigm for all of human culture yes yes beautiful and i i certainly have experienced this firsthand you know i mean i think that uh you know and in my of course i write about uh neuroqueering and this whole idea yeah. that uh uh you know uh, heteronormativity and sort of, kind of compulsory heteronormativity is inextricably entwined with compulsory neuronormativity, the performance yeah. of heteronormativity and heteronormative, you know, binary gender roles is, is really inseparable from the performance of neurotypicality. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, a very high proportion of autistic people are transgender too, compared to non, uh, you know, uh, non-autistic people like uh, it's including very... speaking autistic people I work with several transgender non-speaking autistic mm -hmm. people. and my my yeah my experience just general yeah you know having after like uh two decades of being involved in autistic community and culture I what I see is autistic people who are like wildly spectacularly queer know very gender non-conforming queer in all kinds of exciting ways um and then those who are uh performing heteronormativity in so strongly that it's <laughs> very clearly that kind of a desperate a desperate act you know yeah. like something something they're doing because uh you know they were they were pressured or abused into it in childhood which was yeah. my experience as well you know i mean i'm coming out 
come out as trans very late in life. I'm at the very early stages of gender transition. It's, you know, not even visible yet. And so that's, you know, it's like, I'm going to spend, you know, my, my fifties, uh, transitioning and that's um and it's fascinating there was this huge gap you know there's like a very long gap between me coming out as autistic and coming out as as trans so i sort of sort of thought i'd done all the coming out i needed to do i think you know okay i'm queer and autistic and that's like you know that's like established that really young and then yeah uh it's a big surprise and it was very much a result of dropping the uh dropping this ongoing unmasking process of dropping the performance of compulsory neuro, neurotypicality, discovering my autistic embodiment. Like when I got far enough with that process, I had to start dropping the, uh, the fake masculine embodiment. I'd been, you know, brutally trained to do in childhood. And so now it's like, whoa, okay, here I am. Like, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm trans as well. Um, and and I just see so much like, of that. Flamingly autistic. Like, I feel like that's one thing. And this may feel not like this may feel like a somewhat, I don't know, insignificant word. But to me, it's really crucial. Is exuberance. Mm -hmm. There's something about autistic exuberance that really meets queer exuberance that really meets yes. trans exuberance that really like all of those things disabled exuberance and i think that um you know yeah it, uh, uh, like maybe if you're a boy right you can you, you can be exuberant but but by the time you're a man you're not really allowed to be exuberant in in that way you're not allowed to bubble up and uh and so yeah, you see how those all come together. And then also, I think that's where it meets liberatory thinking so strongly because you think about like Tony K. Bambara and like, we have to make the revolution irresistible. Like to me, that's mm -hmm. what the exuberance embodies. It's like, yes, I want that. Like that person is experiencing joy. That person is like radiating joy. I want some of that. Like, you know, let's, and so I feel like that's, there's something about exuberance that has always been, and I think it's drawn me into the work too. It's like, I I love this person. Like this person is bringing so much joy to be around and, and it's, and it is very contagious, the exuberance. Yeah, no, I agree. Joyfulness, joyfulness is revolutionary in a yeah. way. And the autistic joy of like, finding joy in, you know language and the sensory experience and ooh this texture here and ooh volcanoes and ooh yeah. trains and I'll you know just the or oh this gesture ooh moving my hand like this yeah. feels so good uh there's this there's this um I think it's revolutionary in the sense that as you say, you know, often we're trained, you know, as part of neuro neuronormative and heteronormative performance, not to express joy and exuberance and not to, yeah. you know, thou shalt not delight in the tactile and the olfactory and such. Yeah. Um, but also it's revolutionary because we're in this consumer society yeah. where the, the, the sort of the market forces tell us what we should want what we should desire what we need to consume and it's like if you can find 
absolute naked joy in running your fingers over particular surfaces and, you know, uh, uh, playing with running water. Like you're, you're pretty hard to market to because you're so easily find joy in, in the everyday. And I think that there's, that's in a, in in a, such a heavily consumer society, that's revolutionary. Like I can find all of this joy without buying a product. Totally. Yeah. There's that, uh, that book how to do nothing by jenny odell right a, a bay area writer and that idea of like you know the subtitles like resisting the attention economy it's like who resists the attention economy better <laughs> than right statistics right like and that and and also that idea i think attention is so important right because the ways in which autistic attention i mean luckily i just now i know from um personal experience and, and like and being with people that uh it's it's so inclusive of the environment right and the more than human world and i think that uh and and of course there's lots of um like neuroscience to back this up but uh in just our, my own experience of it and, and the writing that these writers do you can tell that their attention is immersed in like natural forms and what Adam Wolfond, uh, one of my favorite writers calls the atmospheres, you know, yeah. and that there is a participatory, like import, revolutionarily participatory aspect of that, right? To say, you know, when I write, I write with the atmospheres. Um, when I dance, I dance with the wind. When I, when I'm outside, I hear the language of leaves as Hannah Emerson writes, you know, it's mm-hmm. like all of these yeah. things, you know, just escape the attention economy altogether or reinvented. Oh, absolutely. And that, um, that brings me to, um, uh, something I wanted to ask about, uh, ask you to riff off of a little bit which is the title of the book may tomorrow be awake because that you were talking about that and that immediately like as you talked about this uh you know just now about that exuberance and that that uh you know uh that dancing with the atmospheres and like that uh i i flashed to the the title may tomorrow be awake like I want to hear where that title came from and what uh, what it means to you. Yeah, I mean, so we just had a, a, the launch for the book locally a couple of days ago, and I got to uh, be um, I got to read from the book and share some work from Mark and Max Et, who live here locally, and then um, do a Q and A with Mark and. The book, the May Tomorrow Be Awake is from Mark's poem, from the third poem that Mark mm. ever wrote. Um, so the, and in some ways you could even call it the second poem Mark ever wrote. The first one we just like established, one, that we could like find something together and two, that Mark was ready, um, was going to go for it. Uh, and so the the first chapter of the book talks about the the first like full poem that Mark wrote and then you have to wait until the last chapter to get the second one and the second one is uh the poem that has make tomorrow be awake in it um Mm -hmm. and uh 
yeah and the this notion there's a couple different aspects of it one of course you can think about the kinds of stupor that proliferate through um the attention economy through capitalism through all these normative forces where we slumber on on when we talk about the real world like but that's not the real world. Like the real world, the way we talk about it is actually the world of dreams and stupors and uh, to awaken out of that to what is actually happening in the world, what's actually alive in the world is, is I think what a lot of people are doing right now. And I think the pandemic sped that process up. Um, one author I think about a lot is Robin Wall Kimmerer and her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, that I think has helped so many people realize how to rekindle a relationship to the the more than human world um and i think that that's part of the awakeness of tomorrow um but one of the things that mark also means when he uses that is that is to be awake to each other and that's part of the you know the subtitle, right? Our neurodiverse future, um, which, which is, I, I feel like with speaking with you, it's funny because um, people think about it as like a revolutionary idea. And I love that. Like, I can always be like, listen, it's neurodiverse, whether you want it to be or not. <laughs> it's all right. We're living in the neurodiverse present. That term just describes the way that all our brains are right. Um, humanity is mind. humanity is neurodiverse. We just, we just are neurodiverse, right. So that's like, it kind of slipped this title in that everyone thinks is like out there, but it's really just like, no, that's, we are, we're already there. But uh, Mark is actually really focused on that. And um, you know, when he and his sibling uh, founded their first nonprofit, what they wanted to do and are continuing to do is create a, a neurodiverse um, living community that uh, has all kinds of services, uh, most of them artistic, uh, and that creates housing for people. And Mark has been really insistent on everything being neurodiverse from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and gets really frustrated when he's in a room with a bunch of other people and they're just like, they're like looking to him to kind of ideate everything and, and or leaving him completely out of it. It feels like a very black and white thing sometimes. And he's like, no, we actually have to figure out how to do this together. Like we need to figure out how to be awake together not we take turns being awake not like we do it we just follow the autistic person because that's like the pc way to do it not you know we follow the neurotypical person because they can navigate the neurotypical world it's like we have to actually figure out how to do this together and so i think that um and what you'll find in the book is that mark's poem uh he he edited it with his sibling max and then they wrote it annotations to it which are really amazing um and so you'll see the scope of that vision of may tomorrow be awake everything it holds oh beautiful i want to clarify for the audience here about the terminology um what do you think as we push for like talk about liberatory like one of the things i'm really interested in this next book is 
like once we if we can start to break down this concept of the individual right and kind of show how every person is a composition of forces and selves and mm -hmm. identifications i wonder if neurodiverse then actually becomes appropriate again in this weird way if you go far enough because the individual is multiple and then mm. could an individual be neurodiverse well you still the individual still has one nervous system okay but i think there's something i think uh 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 it's sort of what i'm getting at with the concept of neuroqueering i think there's a yeah. uh this capacity to play with our neuroplasticity i think is underexplored that yeah. the fact that we can um and for me it's part of my like i i, I come to this from a, a zen background of like experiencing everything as uh you know everything is a flow everything's a process sort of a sense of the impermanence of things and so uh yeah. in a sense yeah a person is just a, a locus of experience and uh identity and cognition and all of that are ever shifting and i think that this is why i kind of push back against the idea of uh neurotypes you mm -hmm. know the idea you know or uh the idea of i mean autism is has been a useful category for understanding uh people but uh i think that um there's it's so it's uh, we it's important to push back against the tendency to just put people in boxes uh, because I think identity is yeah. identity is always fluid and the self is always fluid and we are uh, able to be more free and joyful and creative if we allow that to happen and don't try to nail ourselves down or other people. Yeah, or police the borders. Right, right exactly. Yes, beautiful. Well, this brings us kind of perfectly to uh to time so yeah. thank you I wanna... so much nick for oh chris thank your you your amazing questions it's such a pleasure getting to speak with you i'm so thrilled by by your book and so thrilled to hear you've got another one in the works thank you for listening to the ciis public programs podcast our talks and conversations are presented live in san francisco california we recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle Demetio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color 
those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.